Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to the 33rd episode of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and this episode is, uh, I think, the most pivotal episode of, of, of the series of my Where They At series because the gentleman I'm about to introduce really set the tone for not just sports, but overall society. But before I introduce him, I want to let you all know to make sure that you subscribe and or follow Where They At on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, etc. wherever podcasts are available to be able to listen to this interview, but also other interviews I've been able to uh, conduct with wonderful athletes that have really paved the way in sports uh, and society. But this gentleman has really paved the way. And and what he was speaking and what he was preaching is commentary on what is going on today. He was born and raised in Harlem. He was the first person in history to win the 100, 200, and 4 by 100 races in both the NCAA and NAIA finals for East Texas State first and then the legendary track program Speed City at San Jose State. He helped find with Dr. Harry Edwards, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. And it was a group of athletes that pretty much made sure that their voice was heard about the oppression that's going on in this country and around the world. He won the bronze medal in the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City, but that wasn't the most important accomplishment. It was him along with gold medalist Tommy Smith demonstrating a silent but powerful protest by raising their fists in the air to denounce racism and oppression in the United States, the most resonating image in the history of sports. To this day, he has been a pillar for using his platform to emphasize and demand change that needs to happen as well as serving his community. He is a true survivor. It's my honor and privilege, my true honor and privilege to introduce the one and only Dr. John Carlos on where they at. How are you, sir? I'm fine, brother. It's my honor to be with you this morning. Oh, wow. Thank you for the honor, sir. And I want to first ask you, you know, how are you and your family doing in the midst of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that just lingers on and on? Well, the Creator has blessed us, man. Fortunately, we're doing real well, and I would hope that everyone else is out there are safe and to continue to stay safe. Well, no, absolutely. No, I'm glad everyone is blessed and you're blessed as well. And you're based down in Atlanta, Georgia. Right. Yes. Sir. Wow. Wow. So when when did you move to Atlanta? Because I remember in your book you you were out in the Palm Springs area. Right. I was in California for better part of thirty years or more. Mm. Uh, I wanted to move back to New York. New York is my home, the yes, city right. I love. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, I couldn't afford to move back to New York. The prices just was phenomenal. Uh, yeah. I couldn't get back there. You know, when I was a kid, man, they had a thing called white flight white folks was leaving Harlem because now black folks become their neighbors. Now, as a senior citizen, uh, there's white influx. Mm-hmm. And of course, when white influx come, property values go up That's right. and it's pricing everyone out. Those that lived there for, for generations are yes. having to find other places to live now because the taxes and, and everything is just phenomenal. Yeah, gentrification. We're going to talk more about that. But I wanted to, to ask you about this pandemic, you know, what's going on currently. Um, what have you noticed about the pandemic, uh, the exposure when it comes to race? What you've noticed about that? Well, you know, it, it affects black people more in terms of them catching this particular virus. 
And then, you know, you have to take into account, you know, doctors take oath, someone like law enforcement take oath to save lives. Mm-hmm. And the question is whether they went beyond that and chose to be in the position of God in terms of who lives and who dies, uh, just based on the, the ratio uh, that has come out in terms of black black people are dying at 75 to 78 percent more than the rest of the races. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll look at it sometimes and I'll be concerned about modern day genocide. Wow. No, that's deep. And, and also, you know, it, it's very interesting how systematic racism is really brought up to the forefront, you know, with kids having to go back to school or, or the kids that stay home, they don't have the guidance at home. You know, they don't have the access. They don't have the, the, the um, equipment that other certain schools have in certain neighborhoods that's exposed too, right? Well, you know, one, one thing for sure, you know, when you say back home, many black families don't have computers. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a computer and you have no means to go to a classroom, if your parents are not astute enough to sit you down and try and educate, educate the child themselves, this, this kid is lost. And then at the same time, you know, with the epidemic taking place, some individuals are trying to get back to work. You, you can't have mom and dad go back to work with a pandemic going on and just let any old body come and babysit your kids. So mm-hmm. it's a quandary all around for people less fortunate, far greater than individuals that has independent wealth. Wow, and, and you said a quote in your book, which is deep. Racism meant that none of us could truly have our day in the sun. Please elaborate more on that. Well, when you step back and think about racism, you know, we have black people that's very affluent. Let me give you an example. When Oprah Winfrey uh, was in England and she went to buy a purse, a uh, purse cost maybe three, four thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And she went to buy this purse and a white woman behind the counter made the statement, I'm not going to even take the time to go get that purse because you can't afford it. So she didn't make no fuss about it. She turned around, she walked out and then security in the store started following her like she was going to do some shoplifting. Uh, this is a woman that could buy that store. <laughs> but yet still, based on the color of her skin, they didn't know who she was, but based on the color of her skin, they followed her around. You know, many individuals had to go through changes in terms of just a fire years ago before we even had black firemen, before we were even allowed to become firemen. If they went into a black person's house, they would chop up every piece of furniture. Whether it was on fire, whether that room was on fire, or anything, chop it up, throw it out the window. And I remember as a little kid, I went to my dad because there was a fire in the neighborhood. And I went to my dad and I said to him, I said, Pop, why they do that? My father looked at me and said, son, that's what they do when his father. I said, well, come outside, daddy, I need to show you something. He said, son, I'm busy. I said, no, daddy, come, come outside, I need to show you. And he came outside and I said, show me something burnt. My father looked at all the furniture, wasn't nothing burnt. Then he ran in the backyard. You know, we got the alley back there, ran mm-hmm. the alley, Looked in front, nothing burnt. I said, why did they do that, Daddy? And my father looked at me, said to me, he said, son, all people are not treated the same. So I began to realize at a very early age, out of sight, out of mind, if we're not in the boardroom meeting, who's representing us? Who's thinking about us? And we're still to that state today. This is why I say in this whole situation about racism, only way we're going to resolve this racism, we have to sit down at a table. And when you sit at this table, on the other side of the table, 
there has to be main factors. Have to be the federal government have to be sitting there. The banking industry have to be sitting there. Education has to be sitting there. Housing have to be sitting there. The Fortune 500 needs to be sitting there, yeah. as well as health. Mm-hmm. And when I say health, think about mental health for black people. Yes. We don't have mental health for black people. We have mental health for 98.999% white folks. We're just getting into the opportunity to look at ourselves and realize that we have mental health issues that we need to deal with. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of areas where we've been set back because of syst- systemic racism. Mm-hmm. That's why I quoted those individuals that need to be at that table because they were born into this situation. They inherited the Bank of America. They inherited all these various agencies. They didn't start the racism, but they impeded the racism. They carried it on. They provoked it and had it to push forward to the point where what happened back in the 1400s, 1500s, we're still going to this the same thing today. And you might add, back in the 1400s, those individuals that created those atrocities, which was so vicious, the way they took our lives, the way they hung our families, the way they skinned and tarred and feathered our, our people, the way they castrated our men. So mm. when you sit back and you think about those individuals, they're dead. But their DNA is in that kid that went and shot those three people in Wisconsin. The DNA is in that cop that shot that man in the back seven times. That DNA is in the individual that walked down the street and shot that young kid, Travion Martin. That DNA is in that white woman that went into the wrong apartment and killed that man. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we have the DNA of the 1400s right here with us today. But we've never been in a position that we are now to say, okay, everyone is on the same page relative to racism is poison to society. The question is, what are we going to do now? And the only way we're going to resolve this thing is we have to go to the round table. We have to sit down. And those individuals that I mentioned, they got to put their soul on the table. They got to say, hey, man, I have remorse. Just like if an individual was a killer and he was captured, they want to go to the press, want to go to him and, and put the mic in his face. Do you have remorse? Why did you do what you did? And then when you sit back and you look at that, you say, out of all the presidents in this country, from the first one to the current president, I've never heard one president get up and say to the American people, we have a terrible history. And I want to apologize to blacks and all the people of color for the horrific, horrific history that we have in terms of trying to destroy these people from this earth. That's the chief magistrate of the nation supposed to get up and say something like that to try and heal this situation. But when you don't hear it from them, that gives the fire for racism to continue going on because they say when you don't mention it, you approve of it. Yes, no doubt about that. Dr. John Carlos on the 33rd edition of Where They At. Great activist, um, track and field legend as well, and someone that is a legend in our society. Dr. Carlos, speaking of that, you said about the meetings that need to happen. Now, you know, the whole shut up and dribble rhetoric that was created, you know, and the NBA players boycotted the playoffs, but it was, you know, a base, a basis of Jacob Blake shooting as well as numerous murders of black individuals uh, at the hands of police brutality. Now, 
when the season ends, when the playoffs end, how should the players proceed to facilitate true change? How would you advise them to strategize to use their access, use their resources to uh, be able to facilitate meetings with these government officials, local and federal? Well, I don't know whether the athletes will do it as a whole. They will have an athletic representative there. But mm-hmm. what I would think that the athletes have and can do as a responsibility is get a hold of our youngsters. Mm-hmm. We have to have a foundation, mm-hmm. and we have to have a solid foundation. That foundation is the youth behind these professional athletes now. We have to have our athletes to teach them, say, hey, man, you know, you think it's cool to pull your pants up, pull your pants down, but maybe you need to pull your pants up. And not only that, man, maybe you need to think about going to school opposed to going through school. You understand? It's mm-hmm. a difference in going to school and going through school. And we need to make sure that these kids understand this. What better way to communicate to kids than their heroes, mm-hmm. which are the superstar athletes? These athletes have a bigger following than the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Now they're starting to realize that they have this, and they're starting to realize as well that, hey, man, well, I want to be, as Charles Barkley said, I don't want to be nobody's hero. Well, it's not Charles Barkley's choice as to whether he wants to be someone's hero. Yeah, it's role the model. Mm-hmm. adults that choose you as their hero or their role model. So there's many things that they can do in terms of cleaning up their environment. If they got the resources, they have the money. Many of them can go and do the same thing that LeBron James is doing in terms of creating a magnet school to get the best kids that we can get, to put them into these schools. We have so many kids that's so bright that's just dwindling away because there's no interest in them. No outlet, right. None whatsoever. It's just like, you know, years ago when I was a kid, you can go to any park and learn how to play baseball and have a great day there. Now you go in America, look in the black areas, there's no parks. When you sit back and say there's no parks, then you look at professional baseball, they say 50% of them are black, and the 50% out of that, they say 35% of them are from another country. Mm-hmm. So their values might be a little different than yours until they realize it's not about your ethnicity or your nation where you come from, I should say. It's about the color of skin. Understand for them to jump on board and have a full understanding about this race relations because a lot of people like to use the word, well, um, that's not my nation. I'm not from there. No, your skin is from the earth. Mm-hmm. Your, 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 your melanin is from the earth. And that's what they're shooting for is your melanin in your, in your body. So it's their responsibility to step up and educate these young kids. It's your responsibility to try and clean up the neighborhood that you came from. Because a lot of times we have to realize that our black professional people, whether it's in literature, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in sports, whether it's in entertainment, when they become a superstar, everyone takes notice. Mm -hmm. But then when they become an icon, they lose their environment by saying now because you become this icon they didn't taking you out of your home out of your home environment and now you're sitting at their dining room table you're sitting there elbow with their kids you know you get on 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 the golf course with their dad their kid get a chance to go to school and say you know uh, uh john carlos was at my house last night he had dinner with us 
So after a while, you begin to lose that identity. That's why so many of our young athletes, they don't have the time to go home because they're so wrapped up into this other world. By the time, they didn't forgot about home. You know, I, I hate to say this, man, about Kobe. I love Kobe, but mm-hmm. that was one thing I feel that happened to Kobe to the point where only other black person in that helicopter was his daughter. I know if I was on that helicopter with him or a black woman was on that helicopter with him, they'd have told him, say, Kobe, man, you can't see your hand, man. We can't go up in this helicopter. Just to shake his mind to make him think, well, maybe you're right. But with him having the comfort of that, uh, I'm secure, man. Look who's around me. And, yeah. and we lost a great individual. It's, it's a travesty, but it's a truth. Think about our athletes. Think about when they become superstardom. How many of them go back to the hood and do something in the hood? Yeah. How many basketball players from, from the New York Knicks came into Harlem and really did something? When we had Rutgers tournament down there, Rutgers tournament could be a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. But because they didn't have input, someone took Rutgers tournament from 155th Street and moved it up on the hill, kept it up at NYU all them years, and basically destroyed it because when it came back down to Eighth Avenue, it was not the same. Yeah, it was very, it was very, uh, it was very commercial. You know, it didn't have that authenticity. Absolutely. So these these are the type of programs that need to get into. And like I say, the, the biggest push is to teach kids that education is just like food for your stomach. If yes. you don't eat food, man, physically you're gonna die. If you don't eat the other food for your brain. You're going to wish you were dead. But the fact that if you don't have anything to offer to this society, man, you're going to be scratching and scraping all your life. And that's a terrible way to have to live for anyone. And mm-hmm. we've been living like that too long. Mm-hmm. No, and, and sir, and it's very interesting too. Like another thing, especially financial literacy, that type of education, that, that's key, especially with the millionaire basketball players that are there. They've learned it because, you know, they're able, and, and the good thing about a, today's athlete, which is great, is that they've been much better collectively in being able to manage their money. So they have to pass that along too, like you said, to, to their neighborhood. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we have a lot of kids back in the day, they didn't know how to even fill out a check. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at, at one time, uh, we sit back and we think about our kids, when they come into the world, man, we don't even think that if a baby is born, maybe we should put $50 or $25 in the bank. White folks go have a kid come in the world, they're going to drop $50,000, $100,000 in the bank for this kid the day he's born. We don't even think about the fact that maybe we should drop something for this baby so this baby will have possibly a foundation to go to school one day, to go to universities one day. We fought a long time to get into the various universities. But yet and still, economics always play a heavy role. Mm-hmm. The cost of education has gone up. We don't have that. Everything is going up economically, and that's the way they weed this out a lot of times based on economics, man. We're not being prejudiced or biased towards you. Like when you talked about urban redevelopment, they moved those people out that was generational to redevelop this property. Yeah. Okay. 
I'll say they were generational, but when they come back, are they going to be able to go back to that apartment? Oh, no, sir. They can't go back there. Well, what do you mean they can't go back? Well, what are you going to do? Well, it's an auction. Yeah, you have to get in the auction because they're going to auction the property off. Well, how can I compete if I got holes in my pocket with a guy that got all the money in the world? You understand? Mm -hmm. It's a numbers game. And we have to learn the game as black people for the simple reason that if we don't realize to win the game, there's no way we're going to win the game. But when we did that statement in 1968, October, it was worldwide. It was universal. Mm-hmm. It was one that made them wake up in the middle of the night for the last 52 years trying to figure out what the hell was that about? Where did that come from? How did they allow that to happen? And I remember back then when uh, we were getting ready to make the statement, someone ran to the press and told Kurt Gowdy and them, don't put the camera on them. Don't show them. They're getting ready to do something. Don't show them. And Kurt Gowdy and them said, get out the way. What are you talking about? This is history. And they put it on, and it went worldwide. Now, the great thing about that is the right. suffering that we have here in the United States, people on far ends of this earth, that's oppressed, the same as we've been oppressed here. But they've never had a blueprint in terms of how to deal with it. Now they see us get up and demonstrate. Now they know that we can let the world know that we're in pain and agony as well. Yes, sir. Wow. That's what demonstration is about. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And, 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 and the vigor and to keep pushing, you know what I mean? To tire everyone else out to be able to make sure that, that you continue that because you got to pound that message in, you know, well, you for know, sure. It's, it's, it's like this, you know. And I, and, and I try and stress this to these young, young athletes, young professionals, uh, that you're not in the moment. You're in the movement. Mm-hmm. And this is not just a one spontaneous move and then it's forgotten. Once you jump into the pool of humanitarianism, that's a lifelong job. And remember at the same time when you jump into it, you have to take into account that anyone that's involved in social activism on a serious note, you become a very lonely man for a long time. That's right. Before people can understand who you are and what you're really all about. That's then they'll right. come on. That's why I was mentioning to you the other day where I said, you know, back in 1968, a lot of people was at the crossroads was whether we should follow these guys or whether we should go the other way. Well, a lot of them chose to go the other way, and I don't knock them for it. You know, everyone is not on the same page as far as knowledge and strength. Mm-hmm. But then in modern day, they come back and they find that we didn't come full circle and maybe what you guys did were right. Now they want to be in the picture like they was there in 1968. As much as I love them, I love them more than yesterday and less than tomorrow. But mm-hmm. I cannot change history. I can't put you in that picture and say you was there. I'm happy that you woke up today. That if you woke up, your job is to go make sure that you wake others up so they don't make the same mistakes you made. Right, right. And, and it was interesting with the U- in 1968, the USA basketball team, there were some players that decided not to be a part of the team and everything. So there was that, yeah, that divide. Um, and, and it was uh, interesting, uh, in that Olympics, uh, George Foreman, who I had as a guest on the show, um, he said something very interesting, and I would like to play that for you. Yeah, the most important thing, nobody, no one expected me to really win. I didn't have a lot of experience. I uh, went to the Olympic Village. Uh, I had less than 20 fights 
my 25th boxing match was actually my gold medal match. So hmm. nobody expected much of me. Uh, so I wouldn't. I was not involved in anything other than athletics, if you know what I mean. Some of the guys who are in track and field, they they had experience winning this meet, winning that meet. They had record time to represent. So a lot of people spoke to them in the, during that time of controversy, but not with me at all. So I had a wonderful time just being a boxer. That was George Foreman from the eighth episode of Where They At. Um, and I remember you said also that you have no ill will towards George, but what did you think of those comments of, you know, how he didn't have that experience? He was really focused on that, you know. Let me, let me, let me tell you, man, I love George Foreman. Mm -hmm. I love George Foreman because George Foreman was at the bottom. You understand? When I say at the bottom, George Foreman didn't have anything going for him. He didn't have any economics the only way George felt that he can get over it was based on his size and being the bully. Mm -hmm. No one taught George Foreman anything. When George came in, George was as raw as a potato. Yep. <laughs> and, and all he knew, as he stated, was boxing. And when George got that flag in his hand at the, at the, at the, uh, the championship, when he won the, the uh, heavyweight championship, a guy – that was the boxing coach and became my agent at the time was a guy by the name of Pappy Gault. Mm -hmm. Pappy Gault was the head boxing coach. Pappy Gault put that flag in George's hand and pushed him out there. If you notice, George had the flag low first and the people started going crazy. And they was waving the flag. He started waving it. And then they went ballistic. That catapulted George. And George seemed to think that I had something to do with him being weird. I told him, say, the powers of the universe put you where you are. I didn't do it. Mm. I said, we were friends before that time. We're friends after that time. We're friends to, the, to this day. Mm -hmm. George did not have the knowledge that I had. George didn't have the, the, the wide scope in terms of what's happening around the world as we did as young athletes because that's what track and field did. We were young ambassadors. We went all over the world to run track. Mm -hmm. George did his boxing in the hood. And then when he got out the hood, they put him on the boxing program, and next thing you know, bam, he's in the Olympics. But because he rose up to the Olympics physically, what did he rise up mentally? No, he was not ready mentally for the challenge. And then imagine this. Here's an individual that has no knowledge of race relations, mm -hmm. other than the fact that, hey, man, Maybe we don't have what they have. But the real entities in, 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 in of that, he had no knowledge. All I know how to do is go and boss them, bop them down. So now here, we go to the games, and Pappy God says to me, say, John, here, here's four tickets, two for you and two for Tommy, to bring our wives to the fight. Mm -hmm. He said, man, I don't understand uh, what that thing was all about. He said, but one thing I do understand is this. He said, John, you're going to have to feed your family. And I have a plan. And he gave us these tickets to come in. By the grace of God, we didn't go because had we gone and George raised that flag and got worried that we was there, we might have got killed in there. And we had to be concerned about the well-being of our wives. So we didn't make it for whatever reasons. But imagine, wow. imagine a guy that has no knowledge no whole bunch of education, and now all of a sudden the world pounces on him like you the hero, and 
and we're going to lead you, and this is what we want you to do, and this is what you want. we want you to represent. And they tried and take us and turn us like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. They tried and pit us against one another. And now, and love and respect that I have for George when we were young at those games, I have the same love and respect for George today. And I'll tell you something else. Through all my trials and tribulations, when I couldn't feed my kids, that I couldn't do anything, it was a whole bunch of black people that raised up as a result of what I took part in in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Not near one of them sent me a dime or a nickel or a penny for me, not for myself, but just so I can get milk to feed my kids. I was out in that limb by myself, but I understood. That's where I learned that an activist is a very lonely individual. He's a very lonely person for a long time until everybody else catches up. Yes. George Foreman felt that he owed me something. And I try and explain to George, he don't owe me anything, but George cut a check for me one day. Wow. And I said to him, I said, George, he said, man, he said, listen, I want to do better than this. But this is what I can do. And he cut a check, man. It brought tears to my eyes. I tried to give it back. He wouldn't accept it back. He told me, he said, man, if, if, you, if you give it back, you're going to hurt my wife and our feelings. Mm. I said, oh, my God. He said to me, he said, John, he said, man, you can get your flaws done in your house. Take your wife on a cruise. He said, man, you can do something. Go buy that car you like. God, he's always teasing. He said, man, what you doing with all them cars? You gonna you gonna put all them cars? No, but this is the the character of the man. I show you his character one more time. My boss came to me one day at the school, and he said, "John, he said Black History Month is coming up, man, and I don't have anyone for Black History Month. Who do you think we can get?" Mm-hmm. So I said, "Hold on, let me uh, let me think." I said, "Give me the phone," and I called. I spoke to George. I said, "George, I need you to do me a favor." I need you to come to Palm Springs and be the speaker for Black History Month. Mm-hmm. George, well, I don't know, John. Let me get in touch with my son, Monk, and Monk will get back to you. Sure enough, Monk get back. So my dad said, well, he could be there at such and such a time, but he wouldn't be able to arrive until like 245. Mm-hmm. I said, Monk, school is over at 245. Three o'clock school is over. We need him in the, in the, in the stadium to talk to the kids. All right, hold on. I get a call the next day from George. George says, man, what time do you need me there? I told him, he said, all right. We went to the airport. My boss and I went to the airport. George chartered a Learjet. Not a small Learjet, a mid-sized Learjet. You know who was on that plane? Who? Him and his daughter. He chartered that plane to fly in from Houston the Palm Springs, not only did he fly in, but he spoke to the staff, the faculty, anybody he met along the way that I would introduce him to. He went out and he spoke to 2,700 students in the football stadium, fill up, gave a great speech. And then he said, John, I want to do something else. I want to talk to the community too. So I took him back to the hotel, let him and his daughter rest up. And then when got him, he come back that night and spoke to the community. And and let me say this. Also, when he was in the stadium and sat down in the stadium, man, he sat there and took the time for any one of that 2,700 students that wanted an autograph. He sat there, man, and autographed each and every one of them, patients. And that taught me something. 
See, if this man can sit down and autograph for the better part of 2,700 students, who am I to turn anyone away if they want my autograph? Mm -hmm. So I have the utmost respect and admiration for him. And I always tell him, I said, George, I ain't no rich guy, but if I ever get to the point where I have enough money, I will give this money back. I know you won't accept it, and I can put it in a charity for your church. Yes. He's, he's a part of me. And that's no, that's no doubt. This, this man I have the highest admiration for. Wow, not many people know that about your history with him. That's deep yeah, because, yeah. You, you know. Well, you that, remember what I said? How, how about they, they want to keep that divide? Mm-hmm. They, they, they wouldn't make no story about that. Wow. Wow, that's deep. Uh, here, here on the 33rd episode of Where They At with the great Dr. John Carlos. Uh, and also, please, everyone, read Dr. Carlos's powerful autobiography that was co-written by the great writer Dave Zirin. It's called The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World. And Dr. Carlos, I want to lead up to that moment that definitely changed the world for sure. Um, and I, I have here, it's really interesting, um, Dr. Harry Edwards, who I've had the honor to speak to on a few occasions, and, and yourself and Tommy Smith, you created the Olympic Project for Human Rights, which have four central demands. Hire more black coaches, restore Muhammad Ali's heavyweight boxing title, which he lost in 1967, at the year when you, when you gentlemen created uh, the, the project. Remove Avery Brun... You, you go. Yes, yes. Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali didn't lose his title. They taken his title away from him. Oh, taken... Oh, no, no, taken. That's right. That's right. Not right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when Muhammad Ali's heavyweight boxing title was taken from him uh, and also remove Adrian Bundage, that guy, as head of the International Olympic Committee and disinvite South Africa and Rhodesia from the, you know, to the Olympics. Now, um, now the impact of the project. Talk about that that, you know, how you, Dr. Edwards and Tommy were able, and Dr. Smith himself too, is, as well, were able to create that. And, and also how great it was for, doc, for Dr. King to be interested in working oh, with you, excuse me. Well, let me start by saying, when I left New York for track and field, I went to East Texas State University, which mm -hmm. was in a new town in East Texas called Commerce, Texas. Wow, commerce. <laughs> that already, that gives you like you, certain places you shouldn't be at, you know? <laughs> you, know you, you said a mouthful. <laughs> East Texas State was the last school in the state of Texas to become integrated. Mm -hmm. Remember, Texas was the last state to integrate. That's right, absolutely. And that school. That and I also, went, I'm sorry to interrupt, Juneteenth as well. Texas was the state. It took two and a half years to let our, our ancestors know that they were free. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that state is interesting. Well, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was a mash as well because we weren't really free. Oh, right, right. We really free. I mean, yeah, think absolutely. about what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We were supposed to be free then. <laughs> you dig? You dig? Right. right. So we weren't free. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and, you know, well, let me get back to what I was saying about mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. at East Texas State. I get there, they got a lot of racial problems I had to deal with down there. So I decided I was going to leave. But in 1965, it was a fellow named George Anderson he used to run for Southern University. And George and I had gone down to San Jose to visit. 
We checked the school out, went over, we got a chance to meet Professor Edwards. I saw Tommy on the track. We talking the whole nine yards. There was a young fellow by the name of Art Sinberg sitting in the stands. Mm-hmm. And Art Sinberg had the imagination like maybe Abe Saperstein with the Globetrotters. Yes. yes. They, they had Speed City before our time, but this guy Art Sinberg wanted to resurrect it. So he's trying to get the best sprinters in the nation to come into San Jose. And then when, when I got there, it was like a shooting gallery. Uh, he came down on the bus with me from San Jose all the way to East Texas State, trying to convince me to transfer from there to go. I wouldn't go. I'm a loyalist. If I'm here, that's where, I'm, that's where I am, even though they got these racial situations down there. But it got so bad to the point where I felt, because I'm going to take somebody out of this world, or somebody will take me out. The best thing I can do is to take my kids my wife back to New York. And when I went back to New York, just by chance, man, I'm up in the in in uh Brook, Rosedale Gardens and Brooklyn Boulevard in Soundview. My mom oh. had a co-op over there, and I'm helping my mother paint the walls. Mm-hmm. The phone rings. It was Professor Edwards on the phone. Now to this day, I don't know how the man got my mother's number. I don't know what I gave it to him, but I don't remember giving it to him. But in any case, he called and he says, so my mother says, uh, John Carlos, and my mother says, yes. She says, uh, John, it's uh, Professor Edwards here would like to speak to you. Okay. I get on the phone. He said, John, how you doing? He said, this is Harry. He said, listen, man, there's a meeting taking place at the old Americana Hotel, which was across the street from the old Madison Square Garden. The hotel is still there. I think they changed the name, but it used to be called the Americana Hotel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said, some people have a meeting down there, and they would ask me, would I invite you? I said to my mother, somebody they invite me to a meeting. Uh, you think I can go? She said, if they invite you, you need to be there. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. As long as I've been in New York, I think I might have been in one hotel and ran in there because it was raining. I don't go into hotels. So when I get to the hotel, man, I'm like, like I'm inside and I'm looking at the chandeliers and looking at these big beautiful pictures on the wall. And I'm saying I could take that chandelier to my mother. I could snatch that picture of the old piano over there. But my mother wanted nice things. So I took that off, man. And I went to the desk and I asked for something at that time. I didn't even know what it meant. But I say, I'm trying to find SCLC. And they had a room up there, a suite. Mm-hmm. He told me to go and I knocked on the door, man. When I knocked on the door, a dude come to the door, man. And I'm looking at him and I'm saying, man, it's him, but it's not him. But it's, but it's him, but it can't right. be him. Right. And this individual was a guy by the name of Dr. Andrew Young. Oh, yes. The reason why I'm saying it's not him is because I thought Andrew Young was like six foot three, six foot four. And when (laughs) I saw his statue, I was like saying it's the face, but it can't be him. Like I was blown away. But anyway, he was real nice, man, real cordial, invited me in. And I'm sitting there, and I'm cool for a minute. And then I got a little nervous because I started realizing that these luminaries that I saw in this room were the same ones that we saw on TV with Dr. King. Mm-hmm. But I still didn't put two and two together. And I'm <laughs> sitting there, man, and about 20 minutes from me, they offer me to want coffee, want water, soda, sandwich, whatever, cookies. About 25 minutes later, man, a door opened up and Dr. King walked out. And you know how you could wow. feel like, man, I felt like I was turning into petrified wood. Yes. I mean, you know, and the reason I'm saying that is because my mother 
always felt that Dr. King was a lieutenant that God sent here personally to resurrect this world. Yes. And here he is. I'm in his presence. And wow, man. And the essence of this meeting was he wanted to come out and lend support to the Olympic boycott. And I remember him telling Harry that he felt that Harry was doing a fantastic job and he didn't want to take the leadership role, but he wanted to be second in command to what Harry was doing. Mm -hmm. And in the process of the meeting, man, I mean, through the discussion, he said that he was, you know, going to Memphis. And, and after he get back from Memphis, we're going to have a big press conference with, to give his support. Mm -hmm. But in the process, he made a statement about they sent a letter. And this letter, they told him he had a bullet with his name on it. And he wouldn't have to wait long for it. <sighs> so now the meeting is at the end. And he asked, did I have any questions? I said, yes, I have a question. I have two questions. The first question was, did you uh, play any, no, the first question I asked him, I said to him, I said, did, why would you go back if they threatened your life? And he looked at me, he smiled, he said, that's a good question. He said, John, he said, you know, there's people back there working for the sanitation department, a lot of them black, a lot of them poor whites. They're having a hard time trying to get money. They're having a hard time trying to get a union. They're having a hard time, period, just based on who they are as human beings. Someone has to go back there to lend support. That's my job. That's what I do. He said to me, he said, but what I've done in the flesh, you see how I'm revered for what I've done in the flesh. Mm. He said, if they take my life, I will be a million times more powerful in the spirit. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. When he got killed, man, his credibility, his name, his energy, everything just rose universal. When right. I say universal, I'm talking about worldwide. That's right. That's okay? right. So I took that like a nugget and put it in my basket. And I was so excited about the, the question, the, the answer he gave to us. He said, John, you said you had two questions. I said, oh, yes, Dr. King. Do you play any sports? And he said to me, he said, man, I can't shoot pool. Today I'm still trying to figure out whether pool is a sport or a game, right? So uh, he said to me, he said, listen, he said, imagine you getting in a rowboat and you row out to a big lake in the center of the lake and you wait until everything is serene. You bring the oars and you just sit there until everything is serene. And then you take a rock and throw a rock over. What happens? I said, it creates vibrations. He said, of course, it creates waves. Mm -hmm. He said, that rock is the Olympic boycott. He said, when that rock hit the water, anything and everything in that water, in that lake, knew something was amiss. He said, everything on the shores of the lake, on the land, know that something's amiss. He said, oh, that Olympic boycott will get the attention of the world. Mm -hmm. He said, you wouldn't have to kill, maim, or injure anyone. Body. Yes. You understand? Yes. And that, that, that just volumes in my brain in terms of how I can make a statement such as he did. The Olympic Games was just that the, the ultimate platform for what he uh, prescribed for me that day. You understand? Wow. To make an impact that would be universal and yet and still nonviolent. Mm -hmm. That's we wow. think we hit the nail on the head that day. Yes, that's why I was saying about that's why I was saying about that chess move. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For the chess move on that day that 
they're still vibrating about today. That's right. That's right. Here on the 33rd episode of Where They At with the great Dr. John Carlos, the months leading up to the Olympic trials, you went through adversity there. You went through a lot of adversity, but you and, and Dr. Smith, you both were able to still like just blaze, you know, on, they can't take it away from you, you know? Um, but, but talk about the strife that you both went through in the months leading up to even going to Mexico City, especially the strife um, from the IOC committee chairman on um, bondage well you know Mr. Rogers always want to call us boys you boys better behave like we were you know grade school kids uh and then at the same time he put restrictions on us telling the United States Olympic Committee you better check them uh he was in favor of South Africa coming in, into the games mm -hmm. uh we put the demands on them. We was concerned about the Vietnam War as well. Yeah. We put all these demands out. It's just like this current president. Anytime you put out a demand that you want something to, to make it an even playing field or to bring attention to certain things, he wants to nix it. He wants to throw poison on it, throw dirt on it, and try and discredit it. That's what mm -hmm. Avery Brown's game was. Mm -hmm. But yet still, I wanted to be clear that Avery Brown's was the head of the snake. He wasn't necessarily the snake. 1936. That history he has, you know, not, you know, point. You know. Mm -hmm. point. he was the head of the snake. But by the time we got a hold of him in 68, Avery Brothers was an old man. He was the figurehead, but everyone else, that's why I say systemic racism is something that people inherit. You didn't start it. Yes. But you pushed it. You understand? You made it spread more. And that's what the individuals after Avery Bryant did. He was the mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. Take them boys away. He sent a telegram to the United States Olympic Committee. If they continue to be on the team, we would disqualify the whole United States Olympic team. That's mm -hmm. the literature that he put out. After we made the statement, Avery Brynish, I don't know whether it was him or Avery Brynish collectively with the U.S. Olympic Committee, but they had an order to remove all magazines, all newspaper, all radio and TVs, so no one could see what the, what the public had to say on a worldwide level. Because remember, the Olympic Games was a, a universal venture. Mm -hmm. So everybody's newspapers was there. Everybody's, so when this statement took place in Mexico City, the world had their own opinion. Mm -hmm. And a European opinion was a little different than the United States opinion based on the fact that you know, maybe they have some blacks over there. They don't have no whole bunch of blacks, but they didn't have no problem with blacks. And they understood. So they wrote things that was con contrary to what the United States papers were saying. Mm -hmm. So when you sit back and think about what happened after that, the same thing that happened to Muhammad Ali where they tried to ostracize him, they tried to discredit his name, tarnish his reputation, and then most of all, stop his gainful employment to support his family. Mm -hmm. They did it to Muhammad Ali, they did it to Paul Robeson, you know, mm -hmm. to uh, Mr. Kaepernick, and, you know, they yes. did it to John Carlos, and I'm sure uh, if, if, if Rosa Parks was alive today, Mm. She would tell you, yeah, they, they did it to her as well. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. They did, it, they did it. You know, you sit back and think, if Harriet Tubman was white mm. and she would have uh, been fighting for equality, 
in helping black people to escape. You think we ever heard about her? We'd have never heard about Harriet Tubman just like we don't hear about John Brown. Mm-hmm. You understand? Just like you say, after Mexico City, it was three people in that picture. But for the better part of 35 years, 40 years, they cut Peter Norman out of the picture. Yep. And then here the audacity they asked me, say, how come you don't talk about Peter Norman? I talk about him every day. I didn't cut him out the picture. You guys cut him out the picture. You understand? Mm-hmm. So when you sit back and think about anyone based on equality and have a driving force, they're gonna try and belittle you, they're gonna try and you know discourage you, they're gonna try and stop you. But yet still on the white side, they're not gonna do all that to you as much as they're just going to try and wipe you out like you wasn't there, like they did Peter Norman for so many years. Right. Let me tell you about Peter Norman. Yes, I was, <laughs> yes, I was about to ask you about him. Yes, sir. So, God rest Peter, his soul. God rest his soul. Oh, God rest his soul is right. But Peter is popping wherever he is, trust me. <laughs> you know, Peter Norman is a, is, is a guy that I've met indirectly. I had gone to, to Australia to run... I ran over there, I saw this guy. He didn't have no, nothing for me, I didn't have nothing for him. Mm-hmm. And then we get to Mexico City, I happen to be in a race, and I'm cruising through the tape, and I look out the corner of my eye and see this dude rolling. That's right. <laughs> and and, 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 and no, this, this, is, this is one of the heats, not the final, uh-huh. and I waved him down. I mean, I won, I won the race, I waved him down. Uh-huh. But you know, your peripheral vision, we can see out the side of our eyes. That's right. And he, me back down when he did that. I looked at him like, What? <laughs> I like the fact that he had enough man in him to say, Hey, man, I'm somebody too. Don't come waving me down. I got the same ability as you. Now, he was a great athlete. Mm-hmm. Okay? So he got my attention. So we go through the process process of elimination. Mm-hmm. We're in the locker room, not in the locker room, but in the staging area before we go out to the podium. And we in there, Tommy and I, we getting together with the gloves and the shoes and everything, you know, button the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. And Peter comes to me and he said, what are you guys doing? I said, Peter, we getting ready to make a statement. I said, I have a question for you. I said, do you believe in human rights? And he looked at me and he told me, he said, yes, I do. And he explained to me that his mother and father were Salvation Army workers in Australia. Mm-hmm. Well, I said to him, I said, well, listen, would you like to wear an Olympic project for human rights button? And he was reaching for my button, and I pat him on his hand. Get back, man. I'll get you one. <laughs> and it was a, a, I think it was a guy named Paul had the button, and I called to him. He was one of the rowers. We had these white rowers that supported us to, to, to the utmost. Wow. Okay? Wow. From Harvard University. Mm-hmm. And the time they were like hippies back at that time. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. And he was, and he yeah. Was Tim Tim Larry, I think Tim Larry was there during that time, right? Tim yeah. Larry. <laughs> he took the button and threw the button down. I put the button on Peter before we went out. Man, we went out this. We all got the button on now. Mm-hmm. Tommy and I did our thing, but if you notice, Peter there at attention. He didn't disrespect our flag, nor did he disrespect his black flag. In any means, mm-hmm. but just merely because he was a white individual that chose to do what he felt was the right thing relative to humanity. That's right. But they felt that the thing that he did wrong is that he chose to stand for humanity, standing in support of two black men. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So now, when you sit back and think about what happened hence that time, think about the mere fact that when we were here in the United States, you everybody, you know, when we went to to the Olympic Games, it was like a rainbow. Shit, birds were flying, the doves were flying, the balloons was off, the band was playing. Mm-hmm. After we made this demonstration, the band was gone, the birds were laying on the ground dead, the, the rainbow then took off, and it was thunder and lightning, dark skies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now they say, okay, now it's ass whipping time. Well, they come and whip my ass. Tommy Smith had a chance to rest up. When they go whip Tommy Smith's ass, I had a chance to rest up. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, Peter, Peter Norman lived in Australia. At that particular time, Australia was parallel to South Africa. That's right. Relative to their methodology or their thought process relative to the Aboriginal people. Right. Okay? So they were racist at that, at that particular time. I don't know whether they turned the corner on that or not. Today. But back at that time, they was racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They did not like the fact that Peter was there. Well, as I said, Tommy got arrested. I got arrested. Peter got beat 24-7, 365. No rest. When they had the Olympic Games in Australia in the year 2000. Yeah. 2000. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Think about how many years from 68 to 2000. That's right. And they would not honor him. They honored every Australian runner that they had. Man, oh, man. Wow. When they had them all in the field, everybody was there but Mr. Norman. And I mind you now, Mr. Norman still to this day holds the Australian sprint records. Yep. Mr. Norman qualified to make the team the next year. Mm. In both races, the 100 and the 200, it would mm. not allow him to go. Merely because he put a button on and say, I stand for equality. I stand for human rights. And I stand with these two brothers. Mm-hmm. And what I always respect and, and, and admire Peter, and, and whenever I leave, I would hope that I would run across him in, in this space and time just to give him a hug one more time. Yes. When he was going through all that, and I know the powers to be told him, say, Peter, all you got to do is just get up and denounce those guys. Mm-hmm. He would never do that. He never backed up. He never turned away. He never walked off. He never said one demeaning thing about anything about any of us. And he steadfast to his beliefs until the day he died. Mm-hmm. I'll always have respect and love for Peter Norman. And I might say I got more respect and love for him than I do Tommy Smith. Mm. And that's how, another story. How is your relationship? with Dr. Smith? Well, Mr. Smith wants to be a separatist. Mm -hmm. Mr. Smith seems to think that, I don't know whether he's a delusional or what, but he seems to think that he did all that, which is a lie, a fallacy. He was the organizer of it. The best thing that Mr. Smith got out of the whole thing is that I chose to let him have that race. I wasn't concerned about the race as much as I was concerned about being on the victory stand. Mm-hmm. He had gloves, yeah. which was very significant. He said, bring the gloves. So it was my idea that I wanted to make a statement after the deal was said and done, after we had run our quarter semi, I said to Tommy, I said, Tommy, I said, man, I'm disenchanted about the fact that the Olympic Games, the Olympic boycott was called off. I want to make a statement. I said, what's your take on that? He said, I'm with you. 
when he said that, then I, I'm in a dilemma now. What am I going to do relative to the race? Because the race didn't mean shit to me. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I mean, you just wanted to meddle. You just wanted to be right. right. Mm-hmm. I, need, I need to be one of the three places. Now, I, now mm-hmm. to be honest, I anticipated I was going to take second. But anyway. That Peter I, Norman. <laughs> you there, I'll tell you about Peter. Before I get there, I go over to the practice track. Uh-huh. And I see Bud Winters over there, our coach. I said, Boach, but I got a dilemma, man. I need to talk to you, buddy. He said, what's that? I said, man, I want to give this race to Tommy. I said, but I don't want this dude to think I'm no boot butt. You understand? Mm-hmm. And Bud looked at me and he smiled. He said, John, you've always been your own man. You will do what you think is best anyway. <laughs> That's right. And when he, when, when he said that, it just gave me just that much more confidence to do what I was going to do anyway. I just wanted to get his opinion on it. Mm-hmm. So now we get in the final race. Prior to the final race, after I left Bud, I got on the phone and I called some people in New York. They used to make money. They would bet on my races all through high school. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And I was telling them, I say, hey, man, don't your, make Your father, through your father, right? Because your father was all about the numbers, the mathematics. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I would tell them, don't make no bets. I said, because I'm undecided what I'm going to do with this race. Hmm. So by the time I got off the phone, my mindset was, I'm going to give him the race, but what I'm going to do, man, when the gun go off, I'm going to blow off that turn to let anybody know about track and field. If they see this picture, they know if I want this race. Could have had it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, they try and act like they can't see and they don't understand. I ran 1970, 30 days before that race. Mm-hmm. I wasn't injured. I wasn't hurt. Wasn't nothing wrong with me. You mean I'm struggling to run better than that? Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, when the gun went off, man, I wanted to set a precedent to my boys. Say, man, if I wanted it, it's mine. But you could actually see me pull back in the race once I come off that turn. Yep, yep. Then you see me turn around looking at Tommy. See, a lot of people don't know. Tommy faked a groin muscle pull. Okay? <laughs> a groin muscle pull. Now, if anyone is out there in your radio audience or Podcast audience, no. If you pull a groin muscle, you can't see your girlfriend. Yep. You can't run to the bathroom. <laughs> you can't do no whole bunch of running up down the steps. Yep. There's not no whole bunch you're going to do with a groin muscle pull. Yep. You understand? Mm-hmm. That's it. And you mean we're going to power down the track? But I knew it was a bunch of bull. So what I did when when I turned around the race, I'm turning around. I told Tommy, if you want this medal, stop bullshitting and come on. Mm-hmm. And just as I'm saying this, he shoots up and go on by me. Now I'm looking around still in the race to see why I'm in the race. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about Peter Norman. If you remember, man, down 10 minutes before the tape, if you remember my head was to the left, and you see me turn all the way around to my right, yep. because the last 10 minutes, I thought about Peter Norman, because Peter Norman's best part of his race was the last 20 meters of any race he's run. Yeah. And he yeah. was coming like gangbusters, and when I turned it, there he was. So when we went to the tape, I was pissed off about, first of all, what I didn't want Tommy to do, where he threw his hands up like he just kicked my butt. You know, he was so easy, you know. I was pissed about that. And then I was pissed at Peter Norman had taken second over me 
until I looked up at the clock. And when I looked up the clock, I saw that Peter normally run 20 flat. And if he run 20 flat as a white guy, I should <laughs> More happy, I was more happy for him than I was for myself. It's yep. God's truth. So now I looked at the same time and saw that I'd run 20 flat. Well, if you look at that race, man, you see I ran 20 flat, but you look at that race 80 meters in that race, you see me looking around mm-hmm. and striding. I'm not running down the track, I'm striding yep. down the track. Yep, it's a difference in running. And striding. And if you look at the red, and they, they can't denounce nothing that I'm saying, look at the video. Yep. That's so right. Then, Tape don't lie. Tape don't lie. That's right. So now the race is over. And if you notice my conviction relative to our stance about the Olympic Project for Human Rights, if you notice every race I ran, I had that button on my jersey. Mm-hmm. Nobody else in the program had that button on. Because I'm serious about trying to elevate my race mm-hmm. in any way, any facet that I can, I'm going to do it. Instead, people tell me, well, you can get killed. Yeah, I can get killed. But the bottom line is, when I die, I'm going to wait for you. Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody going to walk out of this shit alive. Everybody going to die. But at least I feel good dying for something opposed to standing around waiting on bullshit and, and, and accepting bullshit, excuse my language, mm-hmm. ain't going to die anyway. You understand? Yep. And, and, you know, people have to realize that if we don't deal with these issues now, who's to say when our souls leave this earth and we go to the next level that we're going to be confronted with the same shit there because we didn't deal with it here? Mm-hmm. That's the same difference right now about a basketball player or a football player that's on the field of, of victory. I did it all, man. I caught the pass. I caught two of the winning passes. I shot the last bucket. And you feel good. Everybody in the stadium is applauding and clapping and calling your name. And you mm-hmm. feeling good. You say, man, I feel great. And you go in the shower, take your shower, man. You still vacillating in your mind about how great that day was. And then all of a sudden, boom. You tell the fellas, hey, guys, see you guys at practice tomorrow. And you go open that door to walk from the, the stadium to your car. Boom! You're dead. Yeah. Why are you dead? Just merely because of the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what's happening in America. And if anybody want to doubt that, open your eyes, mm-hmm. open your ears, mm-hmm. because it's right there, live and living color. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I admire right now the Baltimore Ravens. Because the Baltimore Ravens, Ravens ownership came out and made some statements that I've been talking about all along. Mm-hmm. Where has the owners been? I mean, we, you know, I had them, you know, the NFL, I'm happy that they threw money up. They threw up $86 million for urban programs. But they had 86 years they could have did it. Mm-hmm. They had 86 million days they could have did it. Right. The question is whether this is genuine or whether they're playing the game that they played back in the 40s and the 50s and the 30s we get oppressed and get friction they didn't want to throw money at us right and dr carlos that's the thing because it's not about the money but these owners are friends with the house of with the the representatives in the house they're friends with the senators they're friends with the lobbyists you know like (laughs) them being friends with them is it's it's a matter right now of let's say let's say for for the sake of youngsters that might be out there Look at it like this. Mm-hmm. I made a public demonstration. 
and people that's in the march, they're making demonstrations, right? By mm -hmm. having their posters, by seeing them marching out there and saying, we're against this Black Lives Matter, the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. And all of it comes about, when I was on that victory stand, man, I felt pain and agony about what was happening to my people. Yes. Those individuals marching feel the same pain and agony. They're making a public demonstration the same as I made a public demonstration. I said, but there's a large segment of society that don't march and have never got up and made a public demonstration. But that pain and agony is still within them. So the only yes. outlet that they have when they see an individual getting shot in the back seven times, mm -hmm. F-U-C-K. They scream it, F-U-C-K. They say the word. Mm -hmm. Because the frustration in them, I'm not going to get out and march. I'm not going to make a demonstration, but I have to have that release from what I just saw. So they say that word. Now, based on what you're saying about these athletes, what the athletes are doing now mm -hmm. by walking out, the owners now are saying, F-U-C-K, what's going on? You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it's putting them in a the corner now where these young individuals realize that you're the cow that gave the milk. And we appreciate the fact that you give the milk. We respect you for giving us these opportunities. But yet still, we feel that we're not getting the same respect coming back. Mm -hmm. In the sense that you're the cow that gave the milk, and now we're here to tell you about doing this walkout that we're the grass. Yes. The cow has to eat in order to give the milk. If there's no grass, there's no cow. That's right. Finan financial and influential power that they should be helping. Like I was saying, they, their friends are in, in the government. So talk now to them. My, that's mm -hmm. my point. You understand? Their arm goes a long way. You understand? Mm -hmm. A long way. And the question is, why have you been silenced all these years when you have such a large contingency of blacks that's making you all this money. Yeah. You have the power, you have a lot of people that listen to you and are influenced by you. So like I stated earlier in the game, if you are closed mouth, man, you are part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And these owners and these commissioners have been silent about race relations for too oh. long. Yes. It's yes. time for you to turn up your body. And that's what these young athletes are saying. If you won't make a statement, we're going to make the statement. That's right. That's right. And, and, and Dr. Carlos, and speaking of the athlete that has made a significant statement because he foreshadowed everything with his statement in 2016, Colin Kaepernick, you know, and, and the strife that he has dealt with because of him speaking up. And now everyone understands and everyone gets it, especially fellow athletes of color, you know, get it. So, but I wanted to ask you. Oh, this, wait, hold, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. some, white, some white athletes get it too. And let me just give you an example of what I'm saying. Mm -hmm, mm, true, true. When, when uh, Cap took a knee and then it caught on, certain individuals started taking a knee. A knee. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when you sit back and you think about Howie Long Jr. Oh, yeah, Howie Chris Long. Chris Long. Chris Long. Chris, right. Long. Mm -hmm. so Chris yep. went out Absolutely. and lent support. That's right. Why is it that you don't hear about Chris Long lending support? Mm -hmm. The same way you don't hear about Peter Norman, the same way you don't hear about uh, uh, John Brown. Right, right. So, because they don't want the white society to realize that white people can have a genuine heart of love. That's right. 
a heart for humanity. So they're not going to put no focus on him. Mm -hmm. You almost didn't remember him until I brought it up because it's out of sight, out of mind. We don't talk about him. We don't show that picture. Nobody know about uh, Chris Long doing what he did. Yeah, yeah. So you have to have admiration and respect for him. Oh, absolutely, yes. I'm sure he has a following as well. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, the people that he have in his camp will say to him, Chris, what did you do? Why did you do that? Now that creates some dialogue, creates room for discussion. Mm -hmm. That's right. And he will educate his people. That, that's, that's, yes, yes, absolutely. And, 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 and the premise was all about education. When we started the Olympic Project for Human Rights, this didn't hatch out of an egg. We went to the library, man. We researched, we researched, we researched to so make sure that we got our tank full with knowledge. Because to make a statement is one thing, but to be able to philosophize as to why you making this statement, why you making this move, that's the bigger thing. At the end of the day, yes, sir. So yes, sir. If you decide whichever road you chose to take, you can't say you didn't know. Because all the knowledge that we had, we gave you the knowledge so you can make a valid decision as to what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Now, you got to remember, with decisions, there's another thing that's sprinkled in called fear. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our people have fear for so many years, for eons of time. I'm fearful if they see me doing X, Y, Z, I might get fired from my job. Mm -hmm. I'm fearful if I do X, Y, Z, my landlord might tell me my lease is up and not going to renew my lease. I'm fearful if they see me do X, Y, Z, they're going to abuse my kids in school. Mm -hmm. You understand? Mm -hmm. So now a lot of them are shaking this fear off because when they kill Mr. Floyd, yep. blindness that they have on his mouth, blindness have you to the point where you can't see nothing but straight ahead. Mm -hmm. That's what they want you to see straight ahead. What they want you to see. Yeah, instead they don't of want you to everything, see everything. They don't want you to see the big picture. 360. So 360. There you go. Mm -hmm. That's right. Now, Mr. Floyd died. Now we see the universe. We see it all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you can see, now you say, oh, I have a better understanding now. And when I, my understanding is better, that fear seems to dissipate. It starts to move away. Now I'm feeling strong about who I am and what my voice is. Now I can step up and make a statement. 33rd edition of Where They At with the great Dr. John Carlos uh, here. Um, my name is Nabate Owls, and please make sure to read his prolific uh, book, which is one, uh, it should be a biopic, should be a film made as well, right. but, but his book on, it's uh, the John Carlos story, the sports moment that changed the world. It was written, co-written with uh, Mr. Dave Zirin. So Dr. Let me, let me just say something. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. This is my new comic book. Is it out already? It's, it's out now. We just started to put it up, advertise. Let me just show you a few things here. Wow, the power this of reason. Is, yes, sir. That's me as the superhero relative to power of reason. Yes. And, and with and the fist in the air. The left fist in the air. Mm -hmm. I've been dealing with reason from the time I was a child. Yes. Yes. I mean, oh, wow. Shows you... Me dealing with law enforcement, trying to educate my partners. Mm -hmm. But and, and then let me show you the back of the book. See what it depicts on the back? Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Right, right. So from, yeah, I am as, as a baby, me looking out at the world like, 
what is my role in this world? Right. How can I make an impact? Yes. Right. Okay. And here I'm I'm thinking, wow, where do I go from here? Right. Reputation as an athlete. Mm -hmm. The more important, the greatest thing was the knowledge, the education. And that's yes. what I try to stress to kids. Hey, man, the basis for anything we do, we have to be educated about what we do. And I try and make kids understand we are the black president. Mm -hmm. You know that we're the most deprived people on, on the planet right now. Yes, sir. If this man was to come up and say, for my people, I want to give five million jobs. I'm going to start everybody off with $2,500 an hour. I mean, $25 an hour. Mm -hmm. I say, how many of you guys want a job? Everybody in the class put their hand up. I said, all right, guys, I have one more question. The question is, how many of you guys going to be qualified to do the job? You want a job, he want to give you a job. That's right. But the question is, will you be qualified? Build the skill set. Mm -hmm. Give you a job because you're black. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to carry your own weight. Can you do the job? Anything that resonates in my mind where I can raise kids up to let them understand the true value of education. I think, mm -hmm. I'm, I think that's one of the most important ingredients on this planet is knowledge. Knowledge is power. That's what it is, you know. And, and, and well, Dr. Carlos, I want to I wanna also mention your website, johncarlos68.com. That's J-O-H-N-C-A-R-L-O-S-6-8.com. I just wanted to get everyone to know so they can get more information on, on The Power of Reason, your comic book, yes. as, well of, as well as everything you're doing. And um, while I wanted to go back to, to Colin Kaepernick, I wanted to ask you, like, uh, about, because this is very interesting, does Cap hurt or help the struggle if he decides to accept an offer to uh, return to the league? Well, let me just say this. When I met Mr. Kaepernick, mm -hmm. I told him, I said, Cap, I know you want to play football. I said, but man, you didn't jump into something that's greater than football. Yes, bigger. Yes. What you're into is far greater than football. And and uh, I had to explain to him because he and his, his, his lady both, his fiance at the time, was saying that how everyone turned away and walked away from it. And it's a hurting thing when that happens. Yes, what you went him, through. Mm -hmm. Right, and I said to him, I said, man, being an activist is a lonely man's job. I said, it will come around one day and you will be the superhero. But in the interim, it's a lonely man's job. Don't be fretting by that. Mm -hmm. I said, but Cap, let me just say this also. Now, now that you're in this pool of humanita humanitarianism, you cannot turn the volume down. Yes. You better turn the volume up. You understand? Mm -hmm. I said, because if you turn it down, someone's going to jump up in your spot. Mm -hmm. and, and the question is, whether well, they're going to deliver the message that you want delivered? Mm -hmm. Okay? And then I went so far as to tell him, I said, man, there was a guy named Dwayne Thomas. He was probably one of the greatest running backs in the history of the game, particularly mm -hmm. in his day. Played for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, mm -hmm. He had some words with uh, Tom Landry. And they kicked him out of the league. Dwayne was young, just like you. He wanted to play. That was his life to play football. Mm. And Dwayne Thomas wanted, he thirsted for football so bad, and they made him stay out three, four years, and then they brought him back. They didn't bring him back to play. They brought him back to bust his bubble and kick him out again, tell him he wasn't good enough. 
I don't want you to be in that situation, man. There's many more things that you need to be doing other than playing football, man. In your heart, you know you're a great football player. The creator know that you're a great football player. You understand? I say, don't worry about football. Football going to make it one way or another. I say, but my perspective, and I didn't tell him this then. This came to my mind later. Mm -hmm. My perspective about him playing football. No, don't go play football. Mm -hmm. Commissioners tell me, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about what happened. You know, I should have talked to Mr. Kaepernick sooner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, my philosophy is this. If you're sorry, and the fact is that we have no black owners of the NFL, take Mr. Kaepernick and say, Mr. Kaepernick, we're going to let you get a, a team. You get your money together, and we're going to let you be the first black. We're going to invite you the opportunity to be the first black team in the NFL. Yeah, and an, expans an expansion team, because you know that no one's selling. So they're going to have to expand the league. Yep. Whichever way they can to do mm -hmm. it. Yep. But, they, but I've seen them move numbers around. I've seen them do a lot of things when they want to. Mm -hmm. so, but it's a matter of someone putting it on the table. You understand? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I would implore Mr. Kaepernick to give serious thought if this ever gets out to him. And I'm supposed to have some time with him in the, in the near future. Wow. wow but yeah. he needs to look at it from the perspective, if I sit down and talk with the NFL uh, commission and, and people involved, and I want a team. I don't want to come back to be the quarterback. I'm too old a quarterback now. Mm -hmm. I'm old enough, wise enough, smart enough, and I think I can get the capital behind me to have a team in the NFL. Mm -hmm. and see where they come from now. And that, that gives you the opportunity to see whether they're genuine about their one forgiveness for their sins. Yes. Yes. Wow. Dr. Carlos, I, I want, this is something I wanted to ask you about. You were a swimmer. You were an elite swimmer growing up in Harlem, but you were discouraged, you know, the harsh reality of having to be a black swimmer and not have the opportunities. And your father was telling you that. I love his name, Earl Vanderbilt. That's deep. That's deep. Earl Vanderbilt. I, I saw, well, you, did, you did your research, buddy. Oh, no, sir. I had to. You know, I have to. You, you know, you I, did, you I, did, I, I, I love that. I yes, love sir. That. Yes, sir. But, but yeah, talk about, do you, do, do you wish you were a swimmer instead of a track and field uh, runner? I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. No, you know, to be honest with you, man, I'm just satisfied being me. You know, whatever. Okay. Comes, I'm, I'm just happy that that uh, God gave me the talents that He gave me, and and I was able to excel in whichever one I felt was going to help me get to the next level. Mm -hmm. I had a love for for uh, swimming. He's uh, always, you know, joking, telling him I'm I'm the best bathtub swimmer in, in New York. <laughs> And then I matriculated to uh, yes, sir. the Harlem River, and that's what everybody says, women knows. Uh, Colonial Pool, I'm sure you know about. Mm -hmm. there, Harlem, uh, 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 what is it? Uh, High Bridge Pool. Yeah, Harlem. Mm -hmm. But when I was a kid, I heard on the radio about this woman swimming the English Channel. I didn't know what the English Channel was, but I knew what swimming was. And I said to my father, I said, Daddy, the lady swimming the English Channel, what's the English Channel? He explained to me what it was. I said, well, Daddy, does she get a trophy? Does she get money? Does she get a name in the paper? Mm. And he said to me, he said, son, I, I'm sure she probably get a little bit of all that. So I said, Daddy, I got a couple more questions. And he said, what's that, son? 
And my father would always tell me, say, you know, Johnny, I swim like a rock straight to the bottom. In other words, he tell me I can't swim at all. <laughs> so he said, what's your, what's your, your questions? I said, does she swim with a knife in her mouth? And my father looks at me, what do you, what do you mean does she swim with a knife wow. in her mouth? Wow. And well, daddy, is there sharks in the water? And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to swim in yeah. this time. Does she swim with a knife? Does she have to fight the sharks off? Mm-hmm. Then I said to him, I said, daddy, what happens when she have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, I don't know why I ask these questions. And he looked at me, smiled. He said, well, son, I don't know, but I'm going to go find the answers and I'll get back to you. Yes, but yes. Before he could get back to me, they came on the radio again. Your radio at that time was our TV of today. That's right. That's right. And uh, they came on and they started talking about the Olympic Games. And they had the Olympic music behind it and the whole nine yards. And I said, Daddy, what's the Olympics? What's the Olympics? And he's telling me, he said, son, that's when all nations of the world come together and to see who's strong of mind and strong of body. He said, it's like war games. Mm-hmm. I said, what do you mean war games? He said, well, they had basketball and they have track and field and they have uh, swimming. And, and when he said swimming, I said, Daddy, do they, have, uh, they ever had a black swimmer to represent America? And he said, no. And I said, well, I'm going to be the first. I'm going to be the first black woman to represent America. And I'm mm-hmm. literally starting to train, get serious about it, man. Yeah. And then after about a year, year and a half, my father, you know, when your father had to tell you something, man, and it's hurting him to tell you, you can see the expression on their face. Yeah. I remember my father was behind the petition. He was working them shoes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was working, he was working on them shoes. Yeah. And, and he said, son, I need to talk to you. And I said, what's the matter, daddy? He said, I know you want to go to the Olympics as a swimmer. He said, it's not going to happen. What do you mean, pop? What do you mean it's not going to happen? He said, well, son, you can't go. I said, why not? He said, well, son, what would you, what would you train? A swimmer have to train three times a day. What would you train? He said, you can't go to the Harlem River. You lose too many of your friends every year. And in the undercurrents used to take them down every year. Mm-hmm. He said, you can't go out to the ocean, it's too rough. He said, you can't go to Colonial Pool because everybody in there trying to cool off. Mm-hmm. And just as I started to say, well, can't we go to a club? He said, oh, no, we can't go to a club either. I said, well, we can't afford it. He said, oh, no, we can afford it. And I said to him, I said, well, why can't I go? And he did like this. He put his arm, his arm out and he rubbed on his hand. And when he did that, I didn't get make the connection. I thought he had a bug bite. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I said, what do you mean? He said, you can't go because of the color of your skin. And then he said to me, he said, and Johnny, when you and your friends go up the high bridge pool, and remember, mind you, I said, my father didn't go to no pools. He said, when you and your friends go up the high bridge pool, because that was the white pool, white area at that time. Yep. He said, when you and your buddies jumped in the water, what happened? And man, I can see as clear as day right now. As soon as we jumped in, all the white people. They all got out. Right. Bobby, Betty, Brenda, hurry up, get out the water. And it used to blow me away because they would call their kids out the water because we jumped in. And then I would see them putting suntan lotion in out in the sun trying to look like me. (laughs) It blew me away. I I couldn't understand it. Mm -hmm. So he said, son, so... You're going to have to find another way. 
Because I guess when he told me that, I might have looked kind of dejected to him. He said, you just going to have to find another way. And when I put that dejected look on my face, he said, are you going to quit? I said, no, Daddy, I'll just find another way. And how I got involved in track and field was two policemen, two detectives out of 32nd precinct, mm -hmm. Mr. Lester and Mr. Bryant. Yes. Mr. Lester was maybe about 5'11". Mr. Brown was like 6'6". Six, six. And they rolled together. Mm -hmm. What happened was, man, I used to go to my partner's houses and they never had food in the cabinets. And they didn't have no clothes in the closets. And remember when they dropped the, the dope on us, man, uh, before yes. Heron came into Harlem, yeah. Yeah. they had a bootleg liquor called King Kong. <laughs> and then all of a sudden King Kong dissipated and Heron came in. Mm. And when Heron came in, man, it was a situation where I would go up on the roof and talk to these junkies up there and mess with them, tease them, the whole nine yards. And they'd be, they be leaning to the balance was crazy. They'd be up there cooking up their, cooking up their stuff. And yeah. shooting up. Mm -hmm. So we would go up there and mess with them. We'd jump in from roof to roof, you know, getting away from them. But I would always go back the next day to mess with them long enough to ask them, why are you doing this? Because I'll never forget, it was two beautiful black women, man. They were like sisters. I think they was twins. And they were wow. tall. I mean, I think they came in from Africa. They were beautiful, blue black. Wow. And man, they got to mess with them drugs. And you ever seen a flower when it comes out, man, like a black rose? Yes. And then all of a sudden, man, it starts to wilter and wilter and then it dies. That's yeah. the way those two sisters got. So that's what made me really trip on why do you using these drugs? Mm. My old man used to tell me, say, son, if, if I ever catch you running around with them junkies, if I hear about you running around with them, you going to God. But Sorry. I was compelled, even with my father telling me, I was compelled to find out. Right. One day, the guy said to me, he said, John, he said, you keep coming back every day messing with his actions. Do you really want to know? And I said, that's why I keep coming back. Of course I want to know. He says to me, he said, listen, he says, you have a girlfriend? I said, yeah, I got a couple of girlfriends. <laughs> he said to me, he said, well, I had a girlfriend too. He said, it took me two years to get the courage up to ask her to be my lady. We go on together. He said, it took another two years to build the courage up within myself to ask her to be my wife. She agreed to be my wife. He said, man, I was the happiest man on the planet. He said, I'm going to be the best husband. I'm going to be the best father. I'm going to be the best provider for my wife, my kids, my family. He said, you, he said, John, do you know what it's like when you can't find a job? You see, you look and you look and you look. He said, and then when you do find a job, they want to pay you substandard wages. And you won't take it. And your wife, when you go home, say they offered you a job and you wouldn't take it and she's mad because you didn't take it. And now you got friction in the house. He said, and then you go in the room and your daughter come in and say, Daddy, remember you told me my birthday, you was going to buy me that dress for my birthday? Yeah, baby. You going to get me that dress? Yeah, baby, I'm going to get you the dress. And he gets up and he put his hand in his pocket, man, in his pocket, he ain't got nothing but holes in his pocket. Ooh. He said, man, I felt that low. He said, before long, man, he said, my son coming, he said, he said, Pop, 
it's, if my PE teacher told me if I don't get some sneakers and some shorts and t-shirt, I'm going to fail my PE class. Now it's infringing upon his kid's education. He goes in his pocket, his other pocket, he goes in the other pocket, he got bigger holes. This is on his mind, his heart all day, he said. He said, then that night, he said, he goes to bed and his wife looks at him and she's smiling. She said, you know, baby, tomorrow's our anniversary. We've been married 15 years. What are we going to do? He said, man, you know what it's like, man? You don't have no money. You don't have no hope. And you can't even give your wife a rose for your anniversary. He said, and then all of a sudden, I go to the mirror, the same mirror that I've been going to from the time I was born. I'm going to the mirror to wash my face and do my hair and brush my teeth. He said, all the time I was doing that, I never looked in the mirror. He said, until after that happened with my family. He said, when I looked in the mirror, I saw what I saw I didn't like. And me being young, I said, what do you mean? You didn't like yourself? And he said, no. I said, why? He said, what was it like? He said, I couldn't be the real husband to my wife. I couldn't be a real father to my kids. I couldn't be the breadwinner. I can't get a job. He said, I started looking for escapism when I realized I didn't like myself. He's saying, like, they give you that little package, they take this, this to help you forget. The same way they did with Donna Ross and Lady Sings the Blues. That's right. Playing Billie Holiday. Yes. Like, that little package that help you forget. Yeah. Well, they took the package, man, thinking it was just going to be a weekend trip. They didn't know it was going to be strong for 60 or 70 years. So when you sit back and you think about all the fathers that was missing in action, Mother struggling, she got four kids. Only thing she got going for her is welfare. Let me tell you what happened with the welfare. I was in my partner's house, the knock on the door. His mother goes to the door, the white woman stands at the door. She said, good morning. White woman just brush on by, don't even respond to her saying good morning. She comes in, she goes over, she looks in the ashtray. Then she goes in the bedroom, she looks up under the bed. And I'm looking at my man like, what's going on? He said, man, just watch, just watch. Then she goes in the closet. And she's looking, and by the time she went to the closet, dogs on me, she's looking for something from a man. Because the rule was, in order for you to get this welfare check, you can't have no man in the house. So think about all these black kids growing up with no man. Think about him being strong and adult. Think about her having to chip it around and drink a little wine and doing what she could do to scrap to pay the bills with four kids. Yeah. You understand? Wow. And then you sit back and you say to yourself, say, oh, now I understand why this is going on. So I saw a little white guy on TV. Mm -hmm. I didn't know who he was at the time, but I liked his antics. Come to find out this guy was Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of black kids that time looked up to Robin Hood because Robin Hood didn't have fear for the sheriff of Nottingham. Mm -hmm. Man, you got your kingdom. I got my park. Nottingham Park. Sir. You rode from Nottingham Park. You're going to pay a tariff coming through here. I don't care who you are. Steal from the rich to give to the poor. Mm -hmm. right. So when I got that concept, those freight trains used to come out right in front of Yankee Stadium. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. I went over there, man. I told my boys. I used to hang with two partners. I told my boys, so, man, we going over there. We go investigate. My man, see, investigate. I said, we go see what they got in the train. That's right, because you were at 142nd and Lenox. So you were right across the 145th Street Bridge that was, leads right up to Yankee Stadium. Yes, sir. Right. I, I was there 
on the next chapter, and then later on down the line, I moved out of there, mm-hmm. and then moved up to 150, 153rd. Ah, oh, yeah. Houses. Yes, yes. Right. So, uh-huh. Because we steal the stuff. At that time, I had left Lenox Avenue. Okay, okay. And I was going across the 155th Street Bridge there. That's flashing. Polar Grounds. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now we breaking in and, and, and taking stuff. And I remember going to the guy, you know, on 155th Street Bridge where they got that little booth where the guy be there waiting for them to call him to open the bridge up. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm thinking ahead and I went to the guy and I said to him, I said, man, how much they pay you to do this job? And he looked at me, he said to me, he said, he said, well, I don't have nothing in here but a telephone, a newspaper, looking out over this nasty-ass river. He said, they don't pay me enough to do this. I said to him, I said, well, you see us coming through here from time to time, man. We're going to be coming through. And the police going to be telling you to open that bridge. If you give us five minutes after they tell you to open that bridge, every time we come through, man, I'll leave something for you. Mm. And we're running with two crates. Mm-hmm. Rolling. One on my arm, one on my shoulder. I'm yeah. rolling. <laughs> he said to me, he said, nah, I can't give you five minutes. And I turned away, kind of dejected, same way my father told me I wasn't going to go to the Olympics. And he says, but I can give you three minutes. And when he said that, man, I lit up like a Christmas tree. I said, deal. Uh-huh. And rolling, man. And I remember when the police used to chase us, and I always thought about the Irish police. They used to be short and snowy. <laughs> big ass gun, big blue belt. But they could run. Mm. And they would catch my partners all the time and have them hemmed up against the wall. All the people crying around. I'm in there. What did they do? Why you bother them? What did they do? And they'd be like on the wall looking around like, man, you got to wear a gift. <laughs> yep. That's... <laughs> I was a runner. Mm-hmm. The two detectives that I mentioned, Mr. Lester and Mr. Bryant, they were smart. They knew ain't no need chasing individuals on the physical side. Chase them with your eyes. When you see who it is, you don't have to chase him. You just wait because the next day or two, you're going to see him and you walk up on him. That's right. And they went to my father. They told my father, say, because my father used to gamble and they used to come to the games and so forth. And they went to my father, say, say, Earl, it's been some break-ins the freight guys, and you need to tell Johnny and my father stop the poop. He said, that's your job. You need to tell him. Mm-hmm. Over at McCoon's Park, where they built the new Yankee Stadium, mm-hmm. They used to have the PAL track meets over there. Uh, so me and my boys go over there, and I ain't going over there for no track meet. I'm going over there because my father's a shoemaker, so I didn't get a chance to have too many pairs of sneakers because he would always buy some quarter van shoes or how they, he would make us a pair of shoes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, and then if we got some sneakers, like I used to come down to Vidoc on the 150th Street Bridge coming down from Broadway, I'm coming down to Vidoc, and I used to put my leg in the, my leg up because that was my break. Mm-hmm. So I burned a hole in my sneakers about that big. So I said, man, I got to get some sneakers. My father see this hole in my sneakers going to kill me. So I knew all the kids had their track meet going on, and I just had to find somebody with my size because they would take their sneakers off or their shoes or what have you and everything and roll it up, roll their pants up. Okay, yeah. I'm going to get some sneakers. This particular day, Mr. Lester and Mr. Bryan come around and they had police cars and blocked the whole park off. Mm-hmm. They walk in and they look for us. And they walk up to me and they see me. They say, come here. And I go there. And my, boy, my boys came and they looked at them and told me, y'all go sit up against that fence right there. Right there, you know where the fence used to be facing out towards the 
towards the park across the street. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a, it's a listen. Mr. Brown said, he said, Mr. Lester, I have something to tell you. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. He said, let me tell you something. It's been some break-ins at the freight yards. We think we know who's doing it. We can't do anything to him until we catch him. And then he took his nose and brushed his nose up against mine and said, and we're going to catch him. <laughs> you better slow your roll. And then Mr. Brown said, go on, tell him the other thing. And Mr. Lester looked at me and he told me, he said, you have a talent. And I said, what talent is that? He said, you're running. When he said I was running, I'd say, <clears throat> like that, right? Mm-hmm. Man, Mr. Brown smacked me on this side of my head. His fingers land over here. Okay, that's how wow. big he was. Wow. He said, don't you ever disrespect Mr. Lester. I said, I'm not disrespecting him. He said, I'm a runner. Everybody in the neighborhood was a runner. But at that, that, at that time, little black kids used to go and snatch women's purses. Yeah. Yep. Okay? Mm-hmm. So they said, now nah, you're special. And they told me, get on that track and run till we stop you. Man, they forgot about me. I'm running around the track. I must have run around the track 50 times. So they finally came back and got me and they gave me a number to the New York Pioneer Club. Told me to call down there and I called. They said, come down there Monday. Mm-hmm. Come down there Monday. That's how my career started. I wanted to ask you about a dignified, young, black, powerful artist by the name of Chadwick Boseman. And he played so many significant roles in his lifetime. He's known for Black Panther, but I feel that he had more powerful roles than that. But he, unfortunately, we lost him to colon cancer, which is very shocking at the age of 43, where most doctors tell people to get your colonoscopy, like starting at age 40. So that's, it's very unfortunate that, that it was something that he could have avoided it if he was past 40 years old, but that's, that's what's the shame of it. But anyway, talk about his great legacy and, and what he meant to you as an artist and as a human being. Well, first of all, I concur with what you had to say about such a young talent, a gifted, a gifted young individual to leave this world in such an early stage in his life. However, we have certain individuals that come to this life and it doesn't take long for them to set a precedent that will last throughout uh, eons of time. And I think he's one of those individuals. We lost another young fella this year by the name of Kobe Bryant. Uh, to be 41, I mean, 42 and 43 years old and to leave. But just think about the lifetime of so many others will still be climbing the mountain to try and just be on a level playing field with, with these young individuals accomplished in their young lives. So in saying that, you think about Mr. Bozeman was born in a little town called Anderson, South South Carolina. Carolina. I'm going to tell you a story about that in a minute. (laughs) So, you know, you think about the fact that he was born there, and even though he was 43 years old, South Carolina has such a history, uh, a negative history, you might say, relative to race relations. Mm -hmm. But he was well-rounded. I don't know whether, you know, his parents or his guardians or his older brothers, whether they shaped him. But whoever shaped him, the, the, the power in the universe might have shaped him, but they did an excellent job in terms of this individual's character, individual, uh, the way he had compassion for humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at the same time, I think when an individual is offered a role to play in a movie, that's a role that you would have to take part in because you put yourself into it. 
And I looked at the number of roles that he played. He started out in 2013 and he played Jackie Robinson, which is a very historical factor in our history. Then he left Jackie Robinson and he played in Thurgood Marshall. He did a superb job and, and, and I don't know for the life of me why they haven't promoted that movie that he did uh, with Thurgood Marshall. It was an excellent movie. Yes, yes. Then Underrated he, performance. Absolutely. And then he moved forward again and created the phenomena. His role that he created, uh, uh, I wouldn't say he created, but he established that role, I might say, uh, to play Black Panther. Mm -hmm. And then to go from Black Panther after they sent market records in the, in that industry, you know, to, to, to establish that a movie that you start in and the movie gross $1.3 billion, I would say he's the top of the heap. I mean, I would think, you know, that Sidney Poitier would have to be proud of him. Harry Belafonte would have to be proud of him. Uh, any black actor that has been in the industry for so long, would have the utmost respect for this young man, not merely because he made the money, but the characters that he played. Mm -hmm. And then to come back, and the last movie that he did before he left us was The Five Bloods. Get back and you look at that movie, which was a great movie. And then to think, while he was making Black Panther, while he was making Five Bloods, he was critically ill at that time. He was going through chemotherapy while he uh, did Black Panther. He had a number of operations while he did Black Panther. But I think that he was so committed to these particular movies because each and every one of the movies I just mentioned was a strong part of American culture and American history relative to Blacks uh, that was exceptional in American history. Mm -hmm. uh, for him to play the characters that he played, and played them so well, I think it'd be an everlasting legacy to young individuals to let them know that you don't have to wait until you're 65 or 75 in order for you to climb that mountain. You can start at a very young age and you can start deep in the South. Despite all of the obstacles that he might've had to go through, his parents might've had to go through to educate him and give him the proper ingredients that have him to come out and be so peaceful within himself, carry himself in such a dignified manner to encourage so many people, to raise so many people up. I remember just the enthusiasm. I was in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, ready to give a speech at uh, LSU University. And the crave was going about the movie Black Panther. And I was trying to wait until I got home to see the movie with my wife and kids but I was just so overwhelmed by the ambiance of the young individual students. They were just like bursting loose to get to the theater. They, they rented the whole theater just for the student body to, to go. And they said, Dr. Kaus, please go to see this movie with us. You, you really wouldn't understand what it means for us to watch this movie with you. And for me to sit there and watch it, you know, it's like a creation, like a miracle happening right before your eyes. Because that movie transcended into so many 
people's minds into their spirits, into their, their belief in self, a belief that we can overcome these things that we're dealing with on a, on a constant basis. It was a fictitious name, Wakanda, but in actuality, it was a reality. Yes, sir. No question. And, and sir, it's very interesting about Chadwick Boseman. I have a great story. Uh, I met Chadwick Boseman to October 2018, and, and it was at a jazz club, and, and he was... I mean, just first of all, you can see he had a great aura, but it was funny. My cousin, my older cousin by the name of Miss Barbara Mack, knew him since he was a child in Anderson, mm. South Carolina. And I would spend my summers in Anderson, South Carolina, and Chadwick or I are around the same age. Were your parents from uh, that area? Oh, uh, actually, my parents born and raised in Harlem, both of them, my father and my mother. Yes, indeed. And then her, but my mother's family was from down south. See, my father was, my father was born in Camden. How close, or how far that is from, uh, from uh, uh, Anderson. But uh, I think a lot of great black individuals came out of the state of South Carolina. Once again, despite of all the agony and trauma that we had to go through as a race of people, uh, to, to rise to the greatness in which this young man did. Uh, the rise to the greatness I feel that my father did. You know, uh, it's an exceptional experience. Uh, I'm just so happy that we had an opportunity to share the time that we had with Mr. Bozeman here on this earth. And as I stated in the interim, it'll be a long, 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 long time before we would ever forget this young man. And what's great about meeting him was that like I said, uh, you know, my cousin, you remember like, who's your cousin? And he was like, oh, Miss Barbara Mack. And he was like, the face he made was like, wow, like, like random that, you know, in New York. Yeah. You know? And he said that she was such an influence on him. And, and then he then we spoke, we took a picture and everything. And I regretted that I, I didn't give him my CD, my album, oh, Eclectic Excursions. I had it on me. I yeah. didn't Pride, you know, with him because I know he was there to hang out. Um, but I, I should have did that. To get the vibe from you is another thing, and then to go out out the door with the thought, "Wow!" And all the people in New York City, I come to a club and hear somebody can tell me about the town where I was born and raised. Mm -hmm. That's phenomenal for him, and and that was something I'm sure as he was leaving this planet, that was flushing through his brain as well. His family was deep. You know, his brother uh, danced with Alvin Ailey. And his older brother is a preacher in Tennessee. And something you know? I want to mention also, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Zenzel Washington had something to do with his his uh, tutelage in the, the in the arts. Yes, and, he paid uh, for a summer program for him. We, mm -hmm. we cannot we cannot go without mentioning the greatness of Zenzel to see the talent in this individual, and then say, I want to invest my time and my energy and my money to support him to the greatness that I see in him right now. That's incredible. And, and I would hope that Zenzel receives his blessings for what he did as well. Yes. And he, and he, he, uh, Denzel, when Denzel was being um, honored, I forgot the awards uh, banquet that he was being honored. Uh -huh. Chadwick Boseman spoke with him and, and Denzel, you can see him tearing. Right. You know, like, yeah. So it's, right. it's it's deep. But um, you know who's another Anderson, South Carolina guy who had a center named after him that I used to go to during those summers that Chadwick hung out in? Jim Rice. Jim Rice, all right. All the baseball Hall of Fame and Jim, right. Jim Rice Center. Yep. From well, I got I got one for you, man. My mom, I lost my mom about two years ago, maybe three. Oh, Vivia Reese. Mom left New York 
and she went down with my sister in a little town called Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Now, let me tell you a little history, seeing that you're in the arts. My estimation of the greatest jazz artist of all time was Thelonious Monk. Uh... And that was Monk's hometown. He was raised in, in uh, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And I always want to know, as great as he was, why there's no recognition in that town that this is the place where this man was born and raised. Uh, right. And, and, and it's a travesty because he truly is a, a legend beyond legends in, in the industry of uh, jazz. Yes. And it, it, he was innovative. His style like was so yeah. ahead of his time. Absolutely. You know, the yeah. way he played. Yeah. And not, not to mention, they say he had HDHD and he had bipolar and he had this and he had that. Whatever he had, God packaged it for him and he displayed it to the world in an excellent manner. And we, you know, we sometimes, man, you know, we take life for granted and we take the gifts that come to us for granted. We don't really realize what we had before us until, it's, until they're gone. Then we realize, oh my God, you know, I, I saw him, uh, I appreciated him, but I didn't really appreciate him like I should have based on what I've seen him do. Another thing, when you sit back and look at, you know, what's happening with Mr. Bozeman, I sit back and I think about how many young kids will grow just based on when they get an opportunity to see these various movies, uh, how, how inspirational it will be for them. And, and, and I don't care, it might be the next 20, 20 years, the next two decades, but they will grow in time in terms of people saying, man, did you see that movie Black, Black Panther? Oh man, I just happened to see him in this movie where he played Thurgood Marshall. And all of this, like I said, compounded in our history. It's not like he made or starred in any fictional movie with the exception of Black Panther, but Black Panther was so real mm -hmm. until you could equate it like the other movies that was real movies. I mean, everybody left that theater until if it wasn't a Wakanda in Africa, it was after that day. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't be surprised if some part of Africa changes his name to commemorate commemorate that young man. The Fred Hampton film, because you, you know, you were around the Panthers, I'm sure, like up in Northern California, you at San Jose State. Right. Um, and the Fred Hampton film, Judas and the Black Messiah, is coming out, and it stars Daniel Kaluuya, who's an excellent actor. He was in the film Get Out, but he's a British actor. What, right. is, your, what is your take on the fact of a British uh, actor um, taking that role of someone that was such an American figure and about the American struggle. What's your take on actors being from other countries that are black that are, that are in these roles? There's two, there's two pieces to that. Mm -hmm. I think black actors here in the United States are realizing that, hey man, we've been underpaid. Whether mm -hmm. it be on the movie screen or whether it be on TV. Mm -hmm. Same thing with American baseball. They said the only way we're going to be able to curtail them and hold them back for pushing for, for higher pay or higher salary or a piece of pot or what have you is to replace them. Mm -hmm. How do we replace them? The same way they did in the court system. When they started sending black people to jail, all of a sudden, all of the judges that came on TV were black, with, uh -huh. the, with the exception of Judge Judy. 
uh-huh. to make you feel comfortable about going to jail, uh-huh. to make you feel comfortable about a black face. You understand? Mm-hmm. I look at it from the perspective as long as the message is potent and least as far truthful as we can be, and it's a good actor, we have to accept it until we get our package together to fend off and protect our rights as Black Americans. Wow, that's deep, sir. Wow, and one last question before I let you go. Which runner you think is really going to shine? Justin Gatlin, Noah Lyles, or Christian Coleman? You know, those guys running 100 and 200. Which well, one do you really Mr. like? Mr. Coleman has some problems right now. Mm. He's suspension for medication, you might say. Ah, yep, yep. So Lyles look like he's doing great right now, and uh, his young brother is stepping up to the plate as well. Mm-hmm. But yet still, there's always room for the unseen individual to come about. But right now, Mr. Lyles looked like the better part of what's going on. Uh, his young brother, as I said, is stepping up. He just ran 20.3 the other day behind mm. Mr. Lyles. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting. But I would say, bar none, if Mr. Lyles is not injured, I think he would be our prime uh, uh, sprinter. For 100 and 200 for both, right? Mm. Yes. Yes. yes, I think he's capable of running both. And then if Mr. Coleman gets his act together, that's the like double jeopardy for for the world in. <laughs> yeah, and Justin Gatlin, like he's the ageless one. That cat well, is still doing his thing. Well, you know, Justin Gatlin. Uh, uh, I don't think Justin Gatlin's gonna have enough steam in him to pull it off again this time. Mm, okay. So, uh, uh, really, I would be extraordinarily surprised if Mr. Gatlin gets in uh, as as anywhere near that gold medal this time. Okay. Wow. So, and wow. I would and I would hope and pray that all the drugs and the stimulus that he used in the sport, that one day it would cease because, you know, people have a blind eye to what's going on. They get excited about records. But I know as being a track guy that drugs are stimulating a lot of people to these records. And the the question my, uh, that concerns me is, are we gonna run zero for the 100 meters before we realize that we destroyed the sport? Because the times are dropping so drastically. If you was to go back and say, let me take a slide rule from the time that Jesse Owens broke the world record to the next time that Bob Hayes came along and broke his record. Mm-hmm. And then from the time Bob Hayes' record came to the time that Jimmy Hines might have come and broke Bob Hayes' record. Mm-hmm. And then you sit back and say to yourself, say, now this, this, the scope is like that. Every week you broke the record, two weeks later somebody else came and broke it. So it's a tit for a tat with the world record right now is based on who got the better medication. Mm. I would hope, and I ain't pointing fingers at nobody that's for others to do, but I'm just saying that the drugs are out there and they need to put a stop to it because it's destroying the only sport that really true black kids have an opportunity to play in where it doesn't cost them an arm and a leg to get a uniform or or to get cleats or helmets or footballs or baseballs or bats or gloves. All they need is a pair of tennis shoes and they can run track. Dr. Carlos, I thank you for all the real talk, the knowledge, the wisdom that you provided. And it's and like I said, this is a special episode of Where They At. And I'm so blessed to have speak, spoken with you. And I, I look forward to us being in touch for sure. Absolutely. Hey, you just remember one thing, man. I am you. You are me. 
Yes, indeed. Much love to the audience. And remember, go to the page yes. and look at this comic book as That's well right. as my And remember, this is something for your kids uh, that they will cherish. Also, remember get that signature because maybe it might be worth something down the line one day as well. That's right. The, the Power of Reason, the comic book. And also check out Dr. Carlos on johncarlos68.com. Dr. Carlos, my pleasure. God bless you, brother. You take care. Thank you all for listening to the 33rd episode of Where They At. I'm the Bateals, and that was Dr. John Carlos. I'm just, just so honored to have spoken with him. And um, as I mentioned before, he's the symbol for, for not just greatness in sports, but, but what needs to be done for us to be great in society. What needs to be done for there to be equality, to get out of racism, to get out of oppression. And uh, Dr. Carlos, him and, and Dr. Tommy Smith, them raising their fists in Mexico City on October 16th, 1968, is the greatest image in sports history without a doubt. And it pretty much is a commentary of what needs to be happening now to this day. And it's 52, almost 52 years later. I'm just overwhelmed with such great knowledge and wisdom that he provided. Also, if you want to hear other episodes, Dr. Carlos episode, of course, and other episodes of Where They At, make sure to subscribe and or follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, uh, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera, wherever you listen to your podcasts to check out Where They At as I talk to these prolific athletes and and prolific individuals in general if you like the music make sure to go to n-a-b-a-t-e-i-s-l-e-s that's nabateisles.com to check out music from my album eclectic excursions so you can be able to to uh, click on the links that go to itunes apple music to spotify to title to amazon music etc etc for sure and also, Catropolis Radio Network, too. Check out Catropolis Radio Network, which is spelled C-A-S-T-R-O-P-O-L-I-S. So it's catropolis.net, so you can hear my show. Uh, it, it streams 8 p.m. every Monday night on Catropolis Radio Network, but also you can hear all the episodes, too, which is on the site, catropolis.net. My name is Nabateos. Thank you all for listening to Where They At. Be blessed. Stay woke. Black Lives Matter. Always remember that. Thank you. Take care, everybody. And also, treat each other well. Have understanding for each other, please. That's what we need for the society to, to grow and to get better for generations to come. Thanks again. God bless everybody. <laughs>